looked at a picture of biblical conversion. And in the introduction of that message last week, I made this statement. We cannot adequately praise or worship someone in whom we don't delight. This week I want to look, I would like to look a little bit further into the subject of worship that pleases God. And I'm convinced that there are many well-meaning, sincere Christians that believe they have a great sense of what worship is all about. And though they are sincere, I believe they're wrong. John Piper makes a statement which I'll quote in a moment, but I would like to add a phrase to his. He says this, The first thing we learn is that worship has to do with real life. It's not a mythical interlude in a week of reality. And I would add this, worship stems from the heart. We have the opportunity to worship God every day through everyday circumstances. In other words, worship is not a one-day or a Sunday event. Amen? It should be something that stems from our heart, from our heart that loves God every day in our life. And that's why John makes this point. It's not just a one-day or a Sunday event. It's not just about when, uh, when we're gathered around with other believers. It stems from our heart and it happens every day in real life. True worship stems from the heart. My ability to worship is not based on the style of music or even the songs that we may or may not sing. Sometimes we compartmentalize worship as that thing that we do on Sunday whenever, when all the instruments kick up and as the music starts playing and we learn this song or that song or we sing this song. It really has nothing to do with that alone. I can and ought to worship God even if we have no music at all. Amen? Because it really, it's a matter of the heart. I wasn't going to use this text, but I think it makes sense to use this text for this subject. So if you would turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And I want to read verses 1 through 14 this morning. It's a familiar passage. But I think we can learn a couple of things about worship, and then we are going to jump around a little bit later in the message. John chapter 4, beginning of verse 1, says this, When Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard He was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus Himself was not baptizing, but His disciples were, He left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So He came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about six in the evening. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and this is Jesus saying this, Give me a drink. Jesus said to her, For his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A Samaritan woman, she asked. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from himself as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. And so the woman said to him, 
give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. It goes on into another part of the discourse that we're not going to get into this morning, right away. But Jesus had to go through go to Galilee, and he decided that he needed to go through Samaria. And the Samaritans were, if I could say it this way, considered half-breeds, so to speak. They were Jewish, quote-unquote, leftovers from the northern kingdom who chose to marry foreigners. And once this happened, the Jews looked upon them as a lesser people because they chose to marry those foreigners. They weren't truly all Jewish and they weren't truly Gentile. They were kind of a mixed breed, so to speak. And because of it, Jews did not often associate with Samaritans, making Jesus' discussion even more interesting. And we see that there in verse 9. He says, How is it you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But then Jesus then offers the Samaritan woman living water. And she's not quite on the same page just yet. She doesn't understand what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is presenting to her. But an interesting thing comes up here. Look at verse 13 and 14. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. Talking about the water from the well. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. Ever. Talking about the living water, the spirit that would live within her and that would bubble up. And and this phrase is awesome here. It says, in fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water. Springing up within for eternal life. That to me is an awesome phrase. That when Jesus Christ comes into the life of a person and the Holy Spirit takes up residence and all of a sudden this living water does what? It wells up inside and it comes out and it overflows into a heart of what's the word? Worship. And it's an amazing thing because she doesn't quite get it just yet. You know, she's looking at this water. Oh wow, I can get this water and I'll never be thirsty again? Wow. How do I get this water? But I got this question. You don't even have a, you don't even have a bucket, and this well is deep. You see, this well of water stems from the inside. It stems from the Holy Spirit living within us, and it's what comes out of a life that is walking with God. So, how do these verses relate to worship being an everyday event? Well, look at verse sixteen. And don't you think it's amazing that as Jesus Christ comes to Samaria? Through Samaria, he comes to this place in Sychar. He sees the well, he sees a woman there. Look at verse 16. Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Verse 15, then 16. Go call your husband. He told her, and come back here. Well, I, I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, For you have had five husbands. And the man you know have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Verse 19, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. She still hasn't quite gotten it, does she? She doesn't understand that the the, the living water that wells up from within, within, she doesn't get it just yet. And she wants to point Jesus to a place where worship took place. And see, that's, what, that's the, the, the mistake that a lot of Christians make. 
we want to point to a quote-unquote place where worship takes place. And in our economy, in our day of living, we want to point to that church. Well, where do you worship? Well, I worship over at Harvest Bible. Well, where do you worship? I worship over at Open Door. I worship at Victory. I worship over here. I worship over there. And she wanted to point Jesus to a place. And notice what she says here. I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet the Jews say that the place of worship is Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He said, where you worship is not about the place. Jesus is not concerned about the place. We worship what we do not, what we do, we worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is the Spirit and those who worship Him will worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He'll explain everything to us. He, she still doesn't get it. She's talking to that one. He says, I am He, the One speaking to you. Now think about this. Christ's words, she didn't get it. I think sometimes we don't get it. We compartmentalize. We get the piece of the pie, and we have the, we have the, the work piece, and we have the neighbor piece, and then we have the relative and family piece, and then we get the church piece, the worship piece. We compartmentalize it. He says, wait a minute, it's not about going to the mountain, it's not about going to the temple, it's about the living God who lives within you, and it comes a well that springs up inside of you. It's not about meeting here within these four walls, is it? It has nothing, very little to do with it. See, worship is an everyday, through everyday life event, circumstance. But I think there's something interesting here in the previous chapter that I think ties into this and lends us a little bit of insight as to why she didn't get it. John chapter 3, verse 19. says, This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light, and what? Avoids it. So that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Concealed sin keeps us from seeing the light of Christ. And as long as we have concealed sin, we'll not worship him throughout the everyday circumstances of life. It really is a matter of the heart. It's not about the instrument. And uh, it's not about the place. It's about the heart. And that's what we have overlooked a lot of times in our lives. And Jesus Christ's words were very poignant at this point. He doesn't dance around the fact that she has sin in her life. He's God in the flesh. He knows everything that's taken place, right? He can see what's going on. He's God in flesh. She can't hide it. But notice the response of the Samaritan woman. Back there in verse 19 and 20. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our first fathers worshipped on this mountain. Yet you Jews say the place of worship in Jerusalem. She wants to go back to a place. And that's not how it works here. What Jesus was interested in was the how and the whom. That's what Jesus is concerned about. 
And we'll get into the how in just a moment. God is interested in the heart. But I want to take just a moment and, and talk about this side note about worship just for a moment. What does the word worship mean? There are several definitions. If you look at different portions of Scripture, you can find out several key words that are translated worship. Worship means bowing. It means lifting of hands. Worship can be considered praying. Worship can be part of our singing. It can be reciting. It can be preaching. But Scripture gives us several things that worship consists of. And we often judge people who feel free to worship in these areas of their walk with God. I find it interesting that I grew up in a church that, um, let's just say we didn't raise hands. That was kind of taboo. How dare anyone raise hand in church while they sing? In fact, it was so kind of funny and humorous, really, that when I became a youth pastor, we took our kids on mission trips. And I can remember on one particular mission trip, we went to Stevenson, Michigan, Central Baptist Church. It was a church about the half size of ours, about 40, 45 people, somewhere in there. And uh, so we came, we brought our 30 kids in our youth group there, and we canvassed the town, and we did all kinds of things. And on Sunday morning, we did a musical for them. And uh, we were very conservative and very traditional, and uh, our, our kids got up to sing. And so I'm in the back row, Don is playing the piano, and we have all these teenagers. And all of a sudden, during one of the songs, one lady in the far back started, just, just, just lifted her hands and began to worship the Lord. And the preacher's daughter reaches over to one of the other kids and goes, Yes, ma'am, you have a question? And the whole youth group heard it. And they started busting out laughing. Yes, ma'am, you have a question? You know, talking about the woman in the back who was raising her hands. Because that was not the norm. It wasn't acceptable. And what began to happen is that you began to judge or look down at anyone else who might raise their hands. In fact, um, one of the pastors that went to my church in, in Indiana, uh, you know, he had this kind of a joke when anybody started to raise his hand, he goes, bad hand, bad hand, put that thing down, bad hand. You know, don't raise your hands in church. So, you know, we're, we're traditional, we're conservative, don't do that. But when you look at Scripture, it's the opposite. That there was bowing down, and there was lifting hands to God. And we forget that. I don't know about you, but it's not normal for me, personally. When, when someone's singing, they start, for me to put my hands up like this while I'm singing, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Everybody in the entire place is what? Everybody is looking at me. Don't look at me. I'm worshiping. No. It's not normal. It's not, it, it should be more normal than it is. But we often judge people who feel free to do that. And we judge their heart, and we don't know the heart of man. We don't know the heart of man. God does. But like, can I also be honest too with that line of thinking? There's a flip side of that coin. And can I say these things can be done in vain? In fact, look what Matthew twenty or Matthew fifteen has to say. If you would turn your Bibles there, Matthew chapter fifteen, verses eight and nine. 
Matthew chapter 15, verse 8 says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. There is a bit of a warning here. And it stems from Isaiah 29, verse 13. And it says this, The Lord says, Because these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. And their worship consists of what? Man-made rules learned by rote. There is a flip side to that coin that we must guard against. God does not want lip service. God doesn't want to see someone up here, whoa, you know, just swaying and waving the arms because it's a rote practice. God is interested in what? The heart. And we must guard our hearts so that we do not get caught up in the lip service. God is interested in the heart. But I also notice in Scripture that God often intertwines two words. Honor and worship. In fact, let me look around. We're going we're to be jumping around from this point, and I trust that you'll just hang on. We're going to be looking at a lot of Scriptures, but I want you to keep these things in mind. Worship is a matter of the heart. Psalm 96, verses 6-8 through says, Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of His name. Bring an offering and enter His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. What's the idea here? We are acknowledging God for who He is. Because it is all about Him. We talk about that often. It's all about Him. But let's pray that it's not just a Sunday event. In Psalm chapter 148... Verses 7 and 9 says this, Praise the Lord from the earth, all sea monsters and ocean depths, lighting and hail, snow and cloud, powerful wind that executes His command, mountain and all hills, fruit, trees and all cedars, wild animals, all cattle, creatures that crawl and flying birds, kings of the earth, and all peoples, princes, and all judges of the earth. Over and over, what's he saying? Everybody is to what? Praise God. That's an everyday, all-day ordeal. In Psalm chapter 76, he adds this phrase in verse 10. He says, Even human wrath will praise you. You will clothe yourself with their trembling wrath. Some translations add the word with gladness. Even in his wrath. Even in his anger, because he is righteous. We are to praise him. So how do we worship wrong when we make it all about the action? When we make it all about the lip service? When we make it all about everything except for the heart? It's wrong. I like this statement he makes. The engagement of the heart in worship is the coming alive of the feelings and emotions and affections of the heart. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. I agree with him completely. Then he goes on to ask, Then what are the feelings or affections that make the outward acts of worship authentic? What are those acts? We're going to be jumping around. Psalm 46, verse 10. 
You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. When we think about that, that God, the all-knowing God of the universe says, listen, if you'll follow me, I'll give you the path to walk on. We have a reason to worship. We have a reason to praise God. So you reveal this path to me. And in your presence is what kind of a joy? An abundant joy. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, But the Lord is in His holy temple, and let everyone on earth be silent in His presence. There is a silent worship. Not only the, God, I worship you, but there's also the, the reverential awe where we sit in His presence and we just shut our mouth and meditate. Psalm 33, verse 8, Let the whole earth tremble before the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of who? Him. That means there's no one on this earth that is exempt from that. We ought to worship God. We ought to praise Him. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13 says, You are to regard the Lord of hosts as holy. Only He should be feared. Only He should be held in awe. I like what it says in Psalm 4, 4. Stand in awe and commune with God upon your bed and be still. And it says Selah. The word Selah in the Old Testament, you read about in the Psalms, several different definitions, but the most common use of the word is just to sit there. Just to think about it. Just to meditate on this thought. He says, stand in awe, commune with God upon your bed and be silent. Selah. Just stop and think and meditate. Who is God? Psalm chapter 5, verse 7 says, But I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. I bow down towards you, your holy temple, in reverential awe of you. Psalmist says, your abundant love. Who of us is worthy of God's love? Who of us? We're only worthy because He's made us worthy. He says, I bow down towards your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen, familiar verse. You remember when David was in sin with Bathsheba? He says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. What's a broken spirit? It's the opposite of a proud one. God says over and over, I hate pride. And he says, I'm a jealous God. I'm the only one. There is no one else. So a heart of humility, a heart of brokenness. So the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled spirit. So as we come before God broken... And empty, having no righteousness of our own before a holy God. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. As a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, for the living God. When can I come and appear before you, God? So there is a desire, there is a yearning to be with God. A thirst for God. Um. I don't know that we really have that in America. I can remember a couple times in my life where I was really, really thirsty. 
the most obvious time for me was when I first was diagnosed with diabetes. I kid you not, I could not get my hands on enough water. Uh, I would put a empty gallon jug of milk water, filled with water, empty, empty one of those jugs, fill it up with water, put it in the fridge, and I would walk by and I would reach in there and grab this thing. Don <laughs> can tell you, I would gargle that whole thing down. I mean, it just, I just could not satisfy it. And then I would fill it back up. Hour later, walk in there and do it again. I mean, I just could not satisfy the thirst. The other time was when I was in India and I was just hot. Everywhere I went, it was dry, it was hot, and I was thirsty. And uh, we carried bottles of water with us everywhere. I, went, go, 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 go. I mean, just like you couldn't satisfy. You're just so thirsty. I wonder if we thirst for God in that way. I look back, there's been chapters of my life where I have, but I haven't consistently done that. I look back in this chapter and I say, man, I got all kinds of notes that I wrote from devotions. I got tablets full of notes. And then all of a sudden this year, I don't have hardly any notes written about my devotions. What was going on that year? I wasn't walking with God as close. And then also another year, I got several chap- tablets again. There's been chapters and pockets of my life where I've thirsted for God. But I wonder if we could all say that's a normalcy in our life, that we thirst for God. I wonder what would be different in our lives if we worship God for who He is. Throw the music aside. Throw the location aside. If we would just draw so close to God that nothing else would satisfy. What would be the difference marked in our life? Psalm 73, 25 and 26. I love these verses. The first time I read these verses, I grabbed my Bible and I walked out into the woods in the middle of Wisconsin. And I looked up, as a clear sky. I could see every star. And I had a flashlight and I just opened it up to Psalm 73. It says, who do I have in heaven but you? I'm sitting there thinking, wow. All the stars and the you can see everything just crystal clear. You can see the heavens. It says, whom do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Do we truly view God as all that we need? See, we're really, really good at mixing our wants and needs. And then we're really equally as good as justifying those wants as needs. I was, yeah, I can do it really good. I'm pro. I can do it. Justify it, rationalize it, excuse it. But is God all we need? Psalm 63, 1, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. Just go back to the beginning of that. I eagerly seek you. That was the heart of the psalmist. Psalm 30, 11 and 12. You turn my lament into dancing. Oh, wait a minute. You're not supposed to dance. That's unbaptist. It has no place in the, in the heart of a child of God. And trust me, you'll never see me do that just by the way. <laughs> that ain't happening. <laughs> You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with gladness. 
so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Psalm 42, 5 and 6. Talking about his reality, the, the transparency of the psalmist here. Why am I so depressed? You ever felt that way? I'll be honest enough. Why is this turmoil inside me? Put your hope in God. What's he saying here? You're depressed? Turn your focus off that and onto him. Pretty simple counseling there. For I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I'm deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mozar. He says, listen, when I catch myself here, i got to refocus. That's still true for every one of us. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for Yahweh. I wait and put my hope in His Word. So he's saying here, I'm not going to trust anything else but Him. Psalm 27, verse 4, and let me just say this, throughout the Psalms, I picked the key verse, but you can pick any one of them and read through them. In Psalm 27, I love Psalm 27, but verse 4 says, I have asked one thing from the Lord, is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, seeking Him in His temple. Remember that song? Oh Lord, You're beautiful, Your face is all I seek. Bottom line is, are we focusing on Him? Because that's what worship is all about. It's bowing down to Him. It's lifting hands to Him. It's reciting the words about Him. Psalm 16, we talked about that. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 37, take delight in the Lord and He will give you your heart's desires. Sweet, I got a blank check. Woo! No. It's what we talked about Sunday night. The more you walk with God, the more your desires will become what God's desires for you are. And you catch yourself asking for the very things that God wants for you. And you find your joy there. We're quick to applaud the accomplishments of man. But are we quick to applaud the greatness of God? I don't know about you. Um, over the last 10 years, my whole view of what worship is all about has changed significantly. Maybe it has for you as well. I told you how I've grown up, and I realized that there's more to it than just... And you're just leaning out, and you know, there's nothing wrong with saying, God, you are awesome. And you don't have to worry about bad hand. So I'm worshiping God. I don't know about you, but I want to scream, Woo! When we get done singing, only a God like you. I honestly, I want to, I want to in my heart just say, Wow, I love that! I mean, you know, just, yeah! <clears throat> yeah, so that's what you get. So we don't do that. Bad hands. Keep them, keep still. Do not let them touch one another. It's the Baptist way. I can remember, I have to be honest, about a year before I came, we came to Indiana, or came to New York, we got to sing it only a God like you. And I just instinctively, whoo! <laughs> yeah, I was the only one. But think about it. We applaud the accomplishments of man. 
we see a great play in some sports, and we're like, whoa, did you see that? Check this out. Hey, get in here, catch a replay. We want to see it. Man, we're quick to say, man, did you see what this person did this week? And we point to the news. Somebody does something great, and we're like, wow, that was cool. But don't you dare applaud God. It's not Baptist. Don't do it. It's wrong. Listen, I don't want to make it about how we worship. But I want us to get to the point, it's about our heart. And it's about who God is. And when John Piper says, you know, you can't worship somebody that you can't praise. It's dead. I agree with them. And I get done singing only a God like you. And you think it's just the words and it rattles off 20 characteristics of who God is. 20 attributes of God. Maybe some of us need to go get Stephen Charnock's The Attributes and Existence of God. It's about this thick and about size 6 point. And you start reading through it six times because it takes that many times to get what he's saying. And you realize how great God is. Start reading through the attributes of God, the characteristics of who God is. And you realize that God is so much bigger. He deserves so much more praise. He deserves so much more honor than we could possibly give Him. So think about these two words, honor and praise. To honor is to ascribe value or worth to. To praise means to boast in. Why don't we boast what we value? Boast means to praise or praising, boasting, one and the same. Honor, value, worth. But when we don't praise, I think it also says something about what we value. Because we boast in what we value. So here's the question. Do we gladly reflect back to God His worth? What's he saying? Let's get back to the Samaritan woman just for a moment. There's a whole other message there that I didn't get into. There's a whole other side of that story. But I just want to draw this little point from it. He says, when you drink of this water, the living water, it becomes a well within you springing up. The Holy Spirit is in you, and it overflows into a heart of worship. I wonder why we don't do that more. See, it's not just that compartment for Sundays. It's not just that little slice of the pie that says, okay, I'm here, and today I'm just going to sing out to God. But Monday, when I really don't feel like getting up, and when I don't want to go to work, and when I don't want to have to deal with people, but I have to, where's God then? Where is He? Are we still willing to boast, praise, give honor to, give value, ascribe value to, worth to, Him, when I really just don't feel like it. Because of the, the spring that, that wells up and overflows within us. Do we gladly reflect back to God, His worth? 
Maybe some of us need to be reminded of the character of God and all that He's done for us. We forget that. Can I just challenge you this morning? Don't make it about the music. We don't know the heart of people. And that's just a very small, insignificant piece in light of the whole picture. Right? It really is. It's an important slice. But compared to the whole piece, it's just one little spot. You see, the, the reality of how we worship is really seeing the other six and a half days a week that we live. The reality of everyday life. That's where we see the reality and the transparency of who our heart is adoring. And that's what we must guard. Let's pray.